The reading this evening comes from Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1 through to chapter 2, verses 3. And it's on page 3 of your pew Bibles. So at the beginning. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the day light, the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the birds of the earth and the bird, sorry, to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were com completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all the work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, this is the second in a series that we're doing, looking at these early chapters of Genesis. Uh, so shall we pray as we come to God's word together tonight? Father, these chapters are so rich, uh, so full of things that we perhaps don't understand, things that we have to wrestle with to understand, but things that are also so fundamental. Lord, thank you for giving us this testimony to what happened in the beginning. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it tonight. We pray that we might understand more about who we are, uh, who you've made us to be as human beings. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit might teach us and that we might be better able to live for you as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's word this evening is all about the fundamentals of being human. That's our title for tonight, being human. Listen to the words of a 20th century theologian. The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself, the way in which he understands his nature and his destiny. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all others which influence human life. So we're talking about being human. And I wonder if this is the sort of image we maybe have in our minds when we're thinking of being human. This is a pretty standard picture of a kind of uh, progress of a set of different homin hominids. Uh, you can see in the middle there, uh, that one is called Homo erectus. That means upright man, because at some point, uh, human being or hominid, these hominids started to stand more upright. Uh, the one on the far uh, of the right of the screen, that's Homo sapiens. That means wise man. And you'll be encouraged to know that that's us. Uh, that's the, the kind of technical term for our species. We're Homo sapiens. And at some point, these hominids become human. That's the, how the story goes. Uh, we're just not quite sure where. So the one that's um, the penultimate one in the sequence there, that's Homo sapiens neanderthalis, or the Neanderthal man. And we're just not really sure whether that's a human being or not. But the idea is, at some point, uh, hominids become human beings. But we can't work that out because we don't really know what makes a human being. Well, contrast that with the creation account that we just read. Thanks very much. We'll take that down. This account makes humanity very distinctive. You cannot miss it, can you? Uh, everything else God creates, we saw last week, God just says, let there be, and it's so. But look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, 
and so on. When God comes finally to create humanity, there's this sense of a sort of deliberation. God's kind of make a plan, because this is almost God's best work. Uh, God is thinking particularly uh, of uh, what he's going to do when he's going to create human beings. And when they are created, they're created in this special relationship to God. Everything else is created according to their kinds. That's the repeated uh, phrase that we get. But human beings are created in our image, God's image, according to our likeness. And then after God creates the animals, God says, verse 25, that it was good. But then have a look down at verse 31. After God creates humanity and blesses them, God saw all that he had made, implying that humanity are are the last uh, things that God makes. And it was very good. Humanity is much more than the apex of some evolutionary process, if there could be such a thing as an apex of an evolutionary process. This passage is telling us, God is wanting us to know tonight, that humanity, human beings, were created to to show God's goodness in a distinctively good way. Alone of all the creatures, when God creates us, he says that it is very good. And this evening, we want to try and understand what is it that is so distinctively good about being human. Well, we're going to focus just on verses 26 to 28 tonight. Um, It's such an enormous amount in there, uh, I've had to chop loads out to even just focus on those verses. Uh, But there's an obvious structure that's worth noticing in these verses. Verse 26 contains the plan, okay? God says, and the, the plan is twofold. Firstly, God says, let us make man in our image. So God says he's going to create humanity. And then secondly, he says what humanity is going to do. Let them rule. And then that twofold uh, part of the plan is then enacted. Verse 27 tells us how God creates man. And then verse 28 uh, tells us all about what humanity is going to do. So we've got these two kind of big headings we need to think about tonight. If we're going to think about what it means to be human from this passage, we need to think about humanity's nature what we're created as, being in the image of God. And then to use uh, the words of that theologian that we started with, we need to think about what we're for. We need to think about our destiny. So those two things are what we're thinking about this evening, humanity's nature and humanity's destiny. Now, I've got lots more to say about humanity's nature, and I think it's more controversial and less clear from the passage uh, what exactly humanity's nature is. So we're going to start with humanity's destiny and spend a few minutes on that, and then we're going to go back and think about humanity's nature. So look with me then at verse 28 to see uh, what humanity's destiny is. Having created human beings, God blessed them. And this is the blessing. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now notice, first of all, that God is still ruling the world by speaking but he's doing it in a different way now, isn't he? God is speaking to people who can understand him and understand what he's saying and respond to it and choose to uh, accept this blessing and commissioning that God is giving them. God's telling humanity how they can fulfill their purpose instead of just uh, saying what it is and it happening. So this is part of the goodness of being human. God doesn't just create mindless robots. He creates people who he instructs and calls into his service. 
And these verses then are giving us our instructions, sort of threefold, multiply, subdue the earth, and then rule over the creatures of the earth. And it's really interesting, this. There's this sense, I think, that the world, although it's created good, is actually not created perfect. Uh, in contrast, unfortunately, to the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is very good. The, the world is not created in some sort of total sense of perfection. It needs humanity to come along and subdue it. Uh, the, the world has got a destiny that is yet to be fulfilled. And here's the interesting thing. That destiny is tied up with our destiny. Our destiny is to lead the world into its destiny, to subdue the world, to rule over it, to allow it to be all that it can be. And so this is a call, this uh, commission here, this blessing. It's a call for us to use our intelligence, our ambition, our creativity, our patience, our determination, our teamwork, our strength, our skill, our care, our foresight, to take the raw materials of the world that God created and turn it into an ordered, beautiful and productive place. To make it more obviously a place that displays God's glory. So very quick application, let's not be embarrassed about human cultural activity. Uh, many of us are, are working in jobs and maybe we feel like those jobs aren't particularly valuable, we don't feel like they're particularly important. But I'm, I could almost guarantee you that any job you do will be displaying something of this original purpose that God gave humanity uh, to do. You'll be doing something that reflects this original destiny that we had of subduing the world. Now, we don't do it very well today. We, we make lots of mistakes. We wreck the environment, for example, all the time. We don't really know how to look after the world. And I think probably we're, we're not able to fully subdue it in the way that we were intended to. But with all that said, don't let that take away from the fact that we are meant to be doing something like this. This is what we were for, to rule this world, to subdue it, to make it better. And every time that we invent medicines or uh, look after people who are sick, uh, sorry, I've used two medical examples, uh, every time we um, uh, do life insurance to enable people to uh, spread their risk more carefully, every time uh, we create a computer program that will help people to uh, understand what it looks like to buy a house more, more intelligently. All of those things are helping us to rule our world, to subdue it, to do something of our original destiny. So being human, you could say that we've got this destiny originally of being kings. We're made to rule our world. And you could say we're made to sort of be priests. We're meant to bring the world to God. We're meant to show how this world can be as glorious as God originally intends it to be. What an amazing destiny, isn't it? What an amazing purpose God created us for. And quite often, we stop there when we're reading this passage these days, I've found. If you look at a lot of commentaries, that's the kind of thing that they'll spend a lot of time on. But I think if we're going to truly understand what it means to be human, and what is so distinctively good about being human. We actually need to take a step back and we need to spend a little bit more time than we often do, at not just asking about this amazing task, this destiny, but also asking about what makes us able to achieve this task. What is it about our nature? What is it about literally being human that makes us so distinctively good? 
And as I say, we're going to spend a lot longer on this uh, because it's less clear and it is more controversial today. So verse 27 then, humanity's nature. And here are those famous verses. First bit of poetry in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, we need to say up front that an important part of our nature is being made male and female. Sexual differentiation between two sexes is an intrinsic part of what it means to be human. That's a really controversial thing to say today, isn't it? And I'm not going to say any more about it because Frank has given himself the title next week of perfect relationships or something like that. So I'm going to uh, allow Frank to deal with all of that much more next week. Um, but I actually want to go a step further back. I want to think about what it is that males and females both share. Uh, this image of God, uh, a sort of slightly more fundamental category even than being male and female. Um, and I, I'll say just for one second, I do think it's important for us as Christians not to be over-fixated on male and female stuff. Our culture is actually obsessed with male and female stuff, even as we're getting confused and denying it. And as Christians, it'd be quite easy to react against that and spend all our time banging on about male and female. And that's really good, and I'm hoping Frank will bang on about that a bit next week. But I'm not going to bang on about it tonight, because it's more important that we understand, I think, first of all, what is fundamentally makes us human, whether we're male or female. And that is that we're made in the image of God. So what does that mean? Well, all creation reflects something of God. God can't do anything without reflecting something about himself. And so every bit of creation images God in some way. But Moses seems to be saying that we, above everything else in creation, somehow picture or reflect or image God distinctively. And that's what makes us so distinctively good. We're in the image of God. Well, what is that exactly? Well, there is unfortunately no clear answer in this passage, I don't think. Um, and so there's lots of answers uh, to this question. Uh, but actually, there was a consensus um, from the early church all the way through to medieval times about what the image of God was. And then the reformers, I think, tweaked that uh, a little bit. And now in the 20th century, we've got a load more uh, other options uh, being introduced as well. So how are we going to find out then what the image of God means? It seems to be important in this passage. It's been important for Christians down the centuries. What is it? Well, we could answer that kind of philosophically. We could try and think about uh, that a little bit uh, and try and think about what makes human beings distinctive from everything else in the world. Uh, or what a lot of people are doing at the moment is we could go to the cultural background. We could think, well, what did an image mean in the kind of the world of the Old Testament, in the kind of ancient world, and, and try and see whether that maybe is something that could help us understand this. Uh, there's, there's good to both of those, but I think the best place for us to start is going to be to try and use the rest of the Bible and see how the rest of the Bible unpacks this, this concept. And I've just got two places for us tonight to try and look at to, to understand this concept. Uh, the first one is in the immediate context, Genesis chapter 2, and then the, the other one is much further on in the New Testament. So firstly then, um, look across with me to Genesis chapter 2. You probably know already that there's, there's almost two creation accounts in the Bible. There's Genesis chapter 1, and that's like the, the zoomed out one. Think about Google Earth or something like that. You're kind of starting out with the, the really big picture. And then Genesis chapter 2 is much more zoomed in. It's like the kind of Google Maps version of the creation account. You can kind of see the street names and the places. And so Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 
It gives us a more detailed description of what it means for us to be created distinctively. So have a look at uh, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now this verse is telling us that there are two sides to our nature. So first of all, we're formed from the dust of the ground. And in that respect, we're similar to everything else that we've been reading about so far in Genesis. So my understanding is that God creates the heavens and the earth uh, in Genesis 1 verse 1. And from then on, what God is doing as he's creating is he's actually shaping and forming the, the material that he's made into something ordered and beautiful. So when God wants to create the dry land, what does he do? He doesn't sort of just create it out of nothing. He commands the sea to gather up into particular areas so that the dry land will appear. And when God wants to create plant life, he doesn't just sort of cause it to come out of nothing. He commands it to come out of the land. And so uh, the creation of humanity seems very similar. Uh, when, he, when God comes to create humanity, it's almost like he's sweeping together a load of dust from the ground. There's nothing particularly unique or special about this. Uh, and that's really emphasized by the word that is used for humanity in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The word is Adam. You can see it in your footnote on your pew Bibles there. Um, the Hebrew for man, Adam, sounds like and may be related to the Hebrew for ground, Adama. They always, they always tell you at theological college not to kind of use any uh, Hebrew or Greek in your sermons, you know, just keep that uh, to yourself. But here it is in the footnote, and I've just, just read that to you, so I think that's, that's allowed. Um, but you can see very easily, can't you, that this is a very humbling sort of thing. Humanity, we're from the ground, we're from the dust. We are Adama. But then second, in verse 7, the other side to our nature is very different. Have a look again. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the image is a bit like God kind of giving the human being CPR, literally breathing into his mouth. But don't miss what's going on here. This is very special and distinctive. We're not told in Genesis chapter 1 about the creation of everything. What we're not told about is the creation of the angels and the other kind of heavenly beings, the invisible realm. That's never mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. The impression that you get is that it's not created by this process of forming and shaping matter. It's almost directly created by God in another way. And the impression that you get is that human beings, when they receive the breath of life, that too is coming directly from God. Like the angels, human beings have this divine, immediate breath, nothing pre-existing. It's almost like a second creation. It's almost like another creation out of nothing when God breathes into this human being the breath or the spirit of life. Um, and that fits very well. Uh, if you look back again to verse 27, you can see there we get three times God created, God created, God created. That verb created is the one that's used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it's only used once in the whole of Genesis chapter 1, apart from that. 
And yet here it is, when God wants to create human beings, he says three times, he created them. God is doing, it's almost like another creation, a direct creation when he breathed this spirit of life into this human body. So the picture seems to be that God creates humanity with a normal physical body, like the animals, but also with an immaterial, spiritual component. And the word that we normally use for this spiritual part of us is our soul. But it also, in the Bible, gets called our heart or our mind. In the Bible, it's what we think with, and it's what we feel with and desire with. And this is what is making humanity different from all the creatures. Uh, We're like animals in that we are physical beings. We're embodied creatures. Our bodies really matter. But we are... Uh, different to the animals, that we have a soul. We have this spiritual part of us. And that makes us, again, different from the angels, because the angels don't have bodies, and the animals don't have souls. But we've got both. The well-known evangelical Anglican minister, John Stott, uh, once gave a seminar to Christian students called Your Mind Matters. And he needed to do that because it wasn't very fashionable in the 20th century evangelical students to really be using their brains because people would be worried that they'd sort of turn into liberals if they started thinking too much about the Christian faith. Um, But I wonder today whether maybe we should be giving seminars called Your Soul Matters because I wonder if it's become a bit unfashionable to talk about our souls. Now we sang about our soul a couple of times tonight which was was great but we almost were forced to do that because we were singing biblical language, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And we talk about spirituality quite a bit, but I wonder if that's almost the only time that we really talk about our souls anymore. And I wonder if that's maybe because we're not really sure what our souls are for anymore. Now, it used to be that our soul was what we thought with and what we felt with. It was really what made us us. And even when at death our souls were separated from our bodies, Uh, We taught each other that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory uh, until they are then reunited with their bodies at the resurrection. And so pastoral ministry could be described and regularly was called the cure of souls. It's quite rare to hear that today, I think. Now, if we asked each other what we did our thinking with and what we did our desiring with, I think we'd all say our brains, wouldn't we? And we know that they're a part of our body. So the question kind of becomes, well, what's our soul for? It sort of doesn't seem to do anything anymore. It's just sort of, we know it exists because we're told about it in the Bible. So it's almost this kind of nothing bit of me that God knows about, but doesn't have any actual impact on my life. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's just how I feel. But... Um, I was encouraged to, well, sort of encouraged to see that 20th century philosophy kind of felt the same way. They called the soul the ghost in the machine. It's almost like, why why bother talking about this thing? We've got a human body that we can explain how it works pretty well. We're increasingly understanding more and more about our brains. So why bother with this sort of ghost thing? It just seems like a religious hangover. But the problem with all of that is that we do actually have a very strong sense of this ghost. We know ourselves. We have a sense of our own consciousness, our own own existence. 
we don't feel like our bodies control us or that our brains simply are kind of emerging from our bodies. We have this sense that we, in fact, control our bodies, that we are, in some way, able to choose and able to decide what we want to do. And science has not come anywhere near to explaining this. In fact, they call this problem, the problem of explaining the existence of human consciousness, the hard problem in neuroscience. Now, when a scientist decides that they're all going to start calling something the hard problem, it's really hard. They're, they're, they're close to giving up. And in fact, a lot of scientists, including really hardcore, top-notch, uh, top-of-the-field neuroscientists, are actually giving up on just saying that we can kind of ever be able to explain our consciousness purely through material processes. They're giving up on the idea that if we just understood brain functioning better and better, we'd ever be able to get to the point of talking about consciousness. They're starting to say, no, there must be some sort of parallel thing going on, some sort of non-material process. And if you're a scientist saying that, uh, if you know anything about science, you'll know that scientists just don't say that. It's, it's an amazing thing that they're saying this. Um, one good person to check out if you're interested in any of this, uh, there's a theologian called David Bentley Hart, who seems to have specialised a fair bit in trying to uh, follow the science on this. And there's a couple of uh, YouTube videos you can watch, a couple of lectures where he talks about this quite a bit. And he says that increasingly philosophers of mind uh, are starting to reject this idea that you could ever explain consciousness uh, through a purely physical approach. Now, I say all that because I think it's really important that we know that we're not just stuff. We're not just material beings. We're not just highly evolved apes. God teaches us that we are this unique combination of body and soul. And even the secular philosophers are starting to recognize that now. Our souls matter. They're what distinguish us from the animals. They're what enable us to have a relationship with God. And you could say that this, this combination that we have of being body and soul, it kind of makes us uniquely positioned in the universe. We're uniquely placed between earth and heaven. Our, our, our feet, if you like, are, are on the ground. But our heads are able to be in touch with the highest spiritual realities imaginable. Uh, if you imagine the universe is basically made up of the invisible realm and the visible realm, then we're like a kind of miniature universe. We alone combine the invisible and the visible world in one being. Each of us is like a miniature cosmos. Don't you think that's amazing? Your soul matters. And here's the, here's the nub. We alone, of all the creatures, are able to bring glory to God by subduing the earth, using our, our minds and our wills to obey God and bring glory to God by ruling the earth and by knowing him, contemplating him, understanding him. We alone can unite these two realms and give them the glory to God that they deserve. Well, we are nearly done, but that said, I'm still not quite sure we've got to the bottom of exactly what the image of God is. You might be discouraged to know. Um, so far, what I've done is I've described the consensus from the early church all the way through to the uh, end of the medieval period in the Reformation. But at the Reformation, people kind of looked again at the Bible, and on the basis of a couple of verses in the New Testament, the Reformers tweaked 
this uh, idea of what the image of God is. So lastly, uh, let's turn to our second passage that helps us understand what the image of God is. And this is going to be much more brief, you'll be pleased to know. So Ephesians uh, chapter 4, page 1176, if you would do me the honour of turning there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 23 and 24. Page 1176. So Paul's uh, encouraging Christians to be made new, verse 23, in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, Paul's talking here about what we are being remade when we come to Christ. But when he talks about what we're being remade to be like, he actually refers back to what we were originally created to be like. We were created to be like God. How? In true righteousness and holiness. In another passage, Paul also talks about a similar kind of idea, and he talks then about being renewed in true knowledge. And so the image of God, the reformers said, is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so here's how our shorter catechism puts this together. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So this is what is distinctively good about being human. Alone of all the creatures, we are able to display a reflection of God's knowledge, God's righteousness, and God's holiness as we live our lives. Uh, If you like, our souls being placed in our bodies, they're like the canvas on which God can paint this beautiful image of his holiness and his knowledge and his righteousness. We sang earlier, didn't we, about the sort of majestic sunset, and that was a sort of a painting that God does. And that's right. But we need to understand that we were created to be the very best painting God could ever produce. When God created man, he created us good. We're told in Ecclesiastes, he created us upright. Adam and Eve were created good. They they had this painting painted on themselves. They were full of God's knowledge, God's righteousness, God's holiness. The Dutch minister William Abrakel says this, all that was to be found in Adam and which proceeded from him was pure light, holiness, righteousness, and orderliness. So here's what this passage teaches us about being human. We have, if you like, a heavenly nature. We were made with the distinctive ability to display God's knowledge, God's righteousness, God's holiness in these souls that are in physical bodies. And we were made to express that, that holiness, knowledge, righteousness in the way that we rule the world, in the way that we draw out from the world the goodness that's inherent in it and show its beauty and show it off to the glory and praise of God. Because of all of that, God said when he made us, that we were very good. So, I've always wanted to say this. If you're a human being here tonight, uh, you are able to be like God in true holiness and true knowledge. And friends, if we've fallen away from that, 
The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come, the one who was the image of God from all eternity, the very word of the Father. He has now become a human being. He is the perfect image of God. And he is renewing us in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So that God can say that we are very good. And so we'll display God's goodness to his praise and glory for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your grand design, things that the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor the mind imagining. These things you've prepared for those who love you. Lord, you made us so very good. You created us to, in some way, display not only your wisdom and your power, but also your righteousness and your knowledge. Lord, we're aware tonight of how far, for, far short we fall of your glory. And so we want to say thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became like us in every way, but without sin. Father, thank you for his knowledge, for his righteousness, for his holiness. Thank you that he was blameless before you all his days. And Lord, thank you that he is now able to renew us, that he is the one who is in possession of your Holy Spirit, able to sanctify us through and through. Lord, we praise you that even in our sinful state, so far from you, thank you that we can have this hope of being renewed, of being like you, and able to live to your praise and glory. We pray that we do that this week. Help us to reflect what you've shown us of your knowledge and your righteousness and your holiness. Lord, would you transform our souls so that they are more and more like you. To your praise and glory we pray. Amen.